Hi, it's Dan Hare for Dusty Discs Radio, and this is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest, lead singer and all-around rock star, Brian Vollmer. We'll be talking about music, travels, the business of music, and the life of a career entertainer. And we'll get some other insights as well about the recording albums and live shows and life in the biz. So join us for a look inside the Canadian music scene from someone who's been there for many decades. Uh, Brian Vollmer is an icon of the Canadian music scene, best known for his band Helix, with 45 years plus now, I guess. And uh, Brian's a rock and roll soldier. He's basically done it all, touring, recording, producing, and much more that we'll get into as we talk to him. So uh, thanks for joining me today, Brian. How are you? I'm great. How about, how about yourself? Well, I'm doing just fine. It's kind of raining here in Vancouver, and you're back in uh, in London. Is that your, your home, where you make your home these days? I live in London in the summer, and usually in the winter, I'm down in North Fort Myers, Florida. Nice. Well, good for you. And uh, I usually ask if you're staying busy through the shutdown, but we talked the other day for quite a while, and, and you were telling me you're doing this project, the golden age of the Canadian bar circuit, and you've been working on that quite a bit. That's correct. We've had uh, several projects on the go since the new year. Uh, we started off the year by doing Tristan's Journey, was for which was for Tristan Roby, a young uh, uh, lad that was hit by a uh, driver and left for dead and he was paralyzed and so we spent the whole month of february uh working with artists like lee Aaron, al harlow prism uh todd kearns a slash and all sorts of people danko jones and we uh got videos sent in and we we started a campaign to raise money and we raised seventeen thousand dollars for tristan to send him to michigan for stem cell treatment and hopefully that will get him talking again and and maybe even walking uh, and uh, wow. as well as doing that, we were putting together a, a song that's going to be released shortly called uh, Not My Circus, Not My Clowns, which was produced by um, by Daryl. And uh, it was mixed by Siegfried Meyer, who's uh, one of Juno, yeah. and uh, mixed by Harry Hess of Harem Scarum, who's one of the best in the business for mastering. So, well, good uh, for you, man. So that's on the go, and then doing this, and uh, I'm cataloging all my memorabilia that I've collected over the last uh, 50 years, and uh, it goes out to the University of Toronto, and I have to catalog all of that uh, stuff before it goes out the door. Um, so there's been lots to keep me busy, and then I'm, I also run an Airbnb and uh, another long-term rental, and Wow, well, and my own property. Well, quit sitting around then. Get get busy. It sounds like you've been doing great. Well, that's a great story about the the young lad that you're helping out. That's a real uh, that's a heart heart warmer right there. And then you said the other day you you emptied out your closet. You had a bunch of memorabilia and you went through it all. And uh, that must have felt good to do that. Well, I had to move the stuff, and uh, we moved into a much smaller house. And even though we only moved fifty feet away from where we originally lived. Uh, we still had to label everything and pack it up and carry it over. And when we finally got it over here, it was piled five feet deep in the basement. And, uh, the first, uh, load of stuff went actually before we moved over here. And it was a whole van load that went down to Toronto. They sent three people from the university to pick it up. It took wow. two years to catalog all the tapes, all the two inch, quarter inch, half inch tapes. The tour jackets, the letters from my mother, my grandmother, but they did it meticulously. And then wow. they brought in an independent auditor. Um, and then they told me how much it was worth as a tax deduction, and off I went. Wow, well, good for you. 
the, the greatest thing was, aside from getting the tax deduction, because it's always nice when the government pays you instead of you paying them, yes. is that um, all this is going to be cataloged and taken proper care of because Helix was a band that uh, broke down a lot of uh, barriers for a lot of bands to come after us. And we followed in the footsteps of great Canadian uh, icons such as the Guess Who, Rush, uh, Harlequin, all those bands that came before us. So. Um, we wanted all that stuff sent away and taken care of. Good. Well, that's good to hear because, I mean, even part of this podcast, you know, we're trying to make a historical record, right? And, and, and after you talk in 40 years, 50 years, you know, it, it's part of our history, right? And it needs to be documented and, and properly documented. So I'm really happy to hear that. That's, that's great news. Well, thank you. Yeah. I've always wanted to do this because I was one of the few musicians in Canada that actually took Super 8 sound film back in the 70s when we first started touring across the country. And I actually had the day that Mount St. Helens blew up. Yeah. And we were traveling from Jasper, Alberta, to Vancouver, British Columbia. Yeah, through the 1980 that was, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, it's funny because, uh, like, like um, Stuart Copeland did that with the st- with the, the police, right? That he made the movie They All Stare at Us, I think it was called. And he filmed from behind the drums and he was one of the very few ones that did it as well. So boy, it sure pays off later when you think about it, when you look back, right? Cause that would have been lost. All those experiences would have been gone. I used to get a real hard time from my manager and the guys in the band, because I was always complaining about how much we made back in those days. We were making like 150 bucks a week. Yeah. And I could hardly live on that, but at the same time I was buying these films that were costing me like 10 bucks for a three <laughs> minute and 20 second roll. And, so when I bring it up at meetings, they all go, well, look, at if you need money that bad, then quit taking those goddamn films. And I got pissed off because I said, look, at someday you'll thank me for taking these Super 8 sound movies. And I used to get so desperate for money to buy these films, I used to stick a bottle up. I taped it to the, uh, the dashboard at the front of the bus, and there was a sign on it that said, for the operation, please donate. <laughs> <laughs> Well, good for you. And and the thing is, he said someday they'll thank you. Well, that day's here now. So you were prophetic in when you said that, because that's that's awesome. Well, I got Robin Williams on film. I have uh, David Coverdale, Cozy Powell, who's now passed away, yeah, yeah. John Sykes, Neil Murray, uh, Kevin DeBrow, who's now passed away, Frankie Benelli, who's now passed away. Yeah. And then once I uh, got through my Super 8, film days then i went on to uh using uh little mini discs for my yep. sony camera well first off we went to video the actual tape you know we used to get the tapes and snap the cartridge yep. in the camera oh yeah and then i went to mini discs and they contained about 20 minutes worth of film hmm. and i have 200 of them oh, wow. <laughs> 200 Jeez. i took and uh, on top of that, I have another eight hours of film for when we toured Europe with Ian Gillen in 1989. Yeah. I have a complete show from stages in Kitchener when Mark Chichkin was in the band around 1990. I have uh, I have the show we did, one of the last shows with Paul Hackman in St. Thomas. Yeah. There was two cameras running that night, and the band was really good. Oh, good. Well, and I just stumbled great. on those tapes lately. So yeah, and you haven't you haven't had time to go through them all. I guess there's lots of stuff there that you still have to kind of review, right? Get it switched over to. Well, not only do I have to go through the Super Eight film and the other films off the mini disc, but I also have to 
go through all my single pictures and I have tubs and tubs of photographs and posters and uh, there's one poster I have in there of when we played with Copper Penny in 1976 at Wonderland Gardens in London, Ontario. Oh. And Copper Penny, ironically, is one of the bands that I'm going to interview for the golden age of the Canadian bar circuit because they were right in when one nighters morphed into the bar scene back around 1967. So yeah, no, that's cool, man. This is this is so neat that you're doing the historical part of it too, and and then I guess the golden age of the bar circuit. You were talking about how the bands came up and they could cut their teeth and they could go out on the road and tighten up and do it. I mean, I, I went through a lot of that, and uh, that the fact that that's gone now, you think is is uh, is a bad thing, right? I not only think it's a bad thing, but a younger artist thinks it's a bad thing as well. I have some very, very talented young people come to me for vocal lessons, as I'm one of the last people in the world to teach true bel canto, which is the only way to sing without damaging your throat. Yeah. But uh, I have one especially talented student, Charlie, and he's actually, his management actually has a writing with the people from Foreigner and, um, you know, I'm Mother Earth and bands like that, and he's like 19 years old. Yeah. I saw the kid play, and he plays guitar like you wouldn't believe. He looks like a rock star. He's like real thing, long, curly, blonde hair, good-looking yeah. guy, sings above a high C, plays guitar, yeah. writes songs. You know, he's the full package. Yeah. And he would give his eyes teeth to be out there playing every night and doing it. Yeah. And another big problem is these, these kids don't play on a regular basis, and they go out there and they scream their voices out for one night and they have two weeks to get better. Yeah. But then they get a record deal and they're out there singing night after night like we used to have to in bars and they blow their throats out in like three or four nights. And if the singer can't sing, the band can't play. Exactly. And that's a good point because, uh, you know, going out on the road, you're a hero on Monday, you're okay on Tuesday, by Wednesday you can hardly talk. And by the weekend, you know, unless you figure that out, and I figured that out early, but unless you figure that out, you're not going to be singing anywhere. You have to learn how to pace yourself. That's one thing that playing in bars did for you. Yep. But it also forced you into getting lessons and trying to improve on your craft. And I say yep. craft because what we did was considered a craft. It was something, and you can't develop a craft in two weeks or two months or two years. Yep. It takes a lifetime. Yeah, no, that's a good point. So you better be in it because you love music, because I'm telling you, for the first 30 years, there's no money. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, that's a good point. And, and I think it was Tony Robbins that said, repetition is the mother of skill, right? And anybody that's good at something has done it thousands of times. And I mean, I, I couldn't count. I've done thousands of gigs. You've done thousands of gigs. If you're an up-and-coming artist and you've only done 100 gigs you're barely scratching the surface to what we had to do in the bar circuit. And, and when you're cutting your teeth in the old days, it was six nighters constantly. And you do thousands. How many gigs have you done in your life? 10,000, 20,000? Like it's got to be, have you ever tried to add it up? Not really, but uh, it'd, have, it'd have to be up in the thousands because at one, at one point, we one year we actually played more than 300 dates a year. Wow. Yeah. See, that's incredible. Like who does that now? I don't know, but Rush used to do it too. Yeah. I heard once where they played over 75 days in a row. Wow. I know, I know we did, I, we did 38 at one point on the wild on the streets album. Yeah. And, uh, George Thurgood, I think they did 50 and 50 one time. That was their tour, 50 gigs in 50 days. So, I mean, that would just kick the snot out of you, man. That would be tough. Well, it depends too on you traveling at that 
stage, they're probably traveling rather comfortably. Yeah. You have to remember back then when we were doing all those uh, one-nighters, not only were we playing night after night after night, but we were traveling in the most adverse conditions imaginable. Yes. I can yeah. remember I can remember so much. Well, the, the morning we did live in Edmonton, I remember waking up in the bunk and I could see my breath in my damn bunk. Yeah. You know, and now, and now when I'm 66 years old, I got arthritis. Gee, I wonder <laughs> why. Well, but you... Well, yeah. We slept in those those freezing cold conditions, and the hotel rooms were, were not much better. Yeah, that's true. I remember one time arriving in Queen's Hotel in Hanover. It was the same week that I met Brian Adams singing for Sweeney Todd down at the high school. Yep. Anyway, I went up to my room, and it was the middle of winter, and it's snowing, and there's no bloody window pane, and there's snow blowing across my room. Oh, jeez. And I go back down to the owner and said, hey, I can't the room room has a broken window and I can't stay there. He says, well, that's all the rooms I got. You either stay there or go home. <laughs> so I phoned my manager. I said, there's no window in my room. He says, well, he says, you can come home, but if you do, nobody gets paid. What do you want to do? So I stayed and sucked it up and put a piece of cardboard in the window and I got a sleeping bag from somewhere and I stayed. <laughs> you see, that's why you're a rock and roll soldier. You've, you've done those. You got the war stories right there. Well, you know, when they say the show must go on, really yep. what that means is translation. I got to get paid. Yeah, I got exactly. bills. <laughs> well, and the thing is the camaraderie too. It's not just you, right? You're making a decision for everybody and, and everybody needs the money. So you got to suck it up and do it, right? It's like I said, if the singer doesn't sing, nobody gets paid. Yeah, there you go. There are many situations where I did not want to sing. I could barely talk back in those days and uh, mm-hmm. I had to go on because... If I didn't, I knew I was putting everybody in a situation, a bad situation. Yeah, well, good. That's just reality. I, I don't think a lot of kids like kids nowadays are supported by mommy and daddy. Yeah. They don't really have to suffer. The mommy and daddy try to buy them their way to a stardom. And if I could tell you how many parents I had over the years ago, all my kids really talented. When they were a baby, they, they danced to the stereo. Yeah. I go, look at, I got news for you. Every baby in the world dances to the stereo, okay? Not just your yeah. kids. Yeah. Well, I think that's the point. And 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 paying your dues, there's just something, there's an experience there that you just can't buy. You either you either get that experience and you know what it feels like or you don't. And if you don't have it, you can't buy it. So that's true. And a lot of people couldn't go through this birth of fire. Yeah. The way it went with the agencies, and this one I'm going to explain in my book, was that once you did well in the southern Ontario region where the agency was located, we, they were out of Waterloo, Ontario. Yeah. Then they send you up to northern Ontario, like Capus Casing, yeah. Hurst, Timmins, Sudbury, Smooth Rock Falls, Longlock, uh, the Sioux, places like that. And if you survived northern Ontario, because it was rough, oh, yeah. you'd, you'd go in and you'd get requests from the audience thrown at you taped to ashtrays they can whip it up you see them, you see an ashtray come through the lights and you just duck hopefully at yeah. the last second i got one one time and i picked it i took the piece of paper out because request get off the stage now <laughs> <laughs> real nice uh, uh, keith, one of the people i'm going to talk to is keith gallagher yeah. and he used to be in a band called direct drive and i i think he was almost going to form a band with buzz sherman just before he died but keith was up north somewhere on a monday night there's hardly anybody in the bar. There was just like a couple of people, bartender. 
this guy walks in with a, so a sawed-off shotgun, walks over the bar, and oh. blows the bartender's head off, right? Oh. And he leaves. And he leaves. He does this in front of wow. Keith. He's up on stage, watches this all go down, right? Yeah. So the cops, of course, want him to testify. He just witnessed a murder, yeah. and uh, he said, "Well, what did the guy shoot the bartender for?" He says. Well, the guy was going to testify against him in court for another murder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so all of a sudden you don't see anything there. Well, I mean, those guys are, that's a rough, those are rough places. You got loggers and miners, and I've played and all over bikers. northern BC and stuff, and bikers, and you just, you can keep your nose clean. I find if you're in the band, you're usually okay. As long as you don't mouth off and cause any problems, you're, you're usually good. Well, it depends, how much the, uh, it depends how much the band is like in the bar. <laughs> I guess, yeah, that's true. All right, on that note, we're going to take a break. We're speaking to the lead singer of Helix, Brian Vollmer. We'll be right back. You can hear music from today's guests and other Canadian musicians from the 60s to 80s every Tuesday and Thursday on Dusty Discs Radio, including one-hit wonders, regional favorites, songs from the top and bottom of the charts, TV show theme songs, commercials, and a news clip or two from back in the day. Listen online at DustyDiscsRadio.com or download the TuneIn Radio app to your tablet or smartphone. Search Dusty Discs Radio and mark it a favorite. Now let's get back to our special guest. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking to Brian Vollmer, lead singer of Helix, getting the inside scoop on the life of a rock and roll soldier. Been around, done it all. So you see a real value in that, in the, the bar circuit, because it really let people cut their teeth and get their experience and you got ups and downs and you, and you sort of fight through it. But then talking about the, the record labels and stuff too, like you, you had spoken one time about the lack of the major labels these days. And I kind of see that as a double-edged sword. I mean, back in the day, the, the record companies were the gatekeepers, like you had to deal with them. Mm-hmm. and and they would allow certain people in and sort of dictate the way things go. But on the other side of it, they were financing and splashing the money around and promoting the albums and stuff, right? And you've been on, reading your bio here, you've been on half a dozen different labels, right? That's true. So what's your what's your view on that? Well, for, first off, the, the labels tried to control us, but they didn't quite control Helis because we were one of the first bands ever to do indie albums. When we got rejected by Capitol Records, and I could show you the rejection letters. I think one of them I got framed. It's on the wall. Yeah, it was nice. by Dan DeVito of CBS Records. Yeah. And he was so pissed off that, I don't know, whoever we got to take our demo in, that he said, look, you know how competitive this uh, business is, and, like, what were you thinking? Like, he went and dressed down this guy and gave him shit. He said, don't ever do that again, basically, right? Yeah. Oh. He was so pissed off. But... <laughs> The funny thing about it, the reason I kept the rejection letter is it was like this guy, Dan DeVito, I think was a, was a famous guy at CBS, but yeah. he signed his name like Dan, like the old D's in the, in the Dan and the DeVito with this yeah. great big friggin' D, right? <laughs> Almost like, and I, I kept thinking of him taking the front of his hair and like whipping it back and like, <laughs> like the D, right? <laughs> and that's why yeah. I framed it. But those letters, rejection letters, made me stronger. It just made me want it more. And yeah. we didn't stop when we got rejected. We, we, we released our own album on the H&S Records, which stood for Helix and Sype, our manager. Yeah. And the first album, Breaking Loose, became a hit in Texas, uh, largely because of Joe Anthony from Kiss K-Mac Radio. And we did our first ever tour of Texas. Uh, we played, um, for, our first gig was actually in Lotus just outside of San Antonio with Y&T and Dave Menachetti. And uh, so I've known Dave for all this time. Um, great, 
fantastic guitar player, Dave Menachetti. Yeah, and, cool. And then uh, from there, we went to um, Amarillo College, and we did a big outdoor college. And by the way, I got it all in film. Oh, nice. Yeah, I got that whole concert in film. It was like 105 degrees in the shade. Yeah. And then from there, we went to Houston and Dallas, and we came home, and all our friends thought we were stars. Yeah. And we even ended up on Global News uh, with nice. Bob McAdory. Remember Bob McAdory? I know the name. I can't picture the face. He was one of the but, famous yeah. first announcers down at Global. Well, yeah. our manager, Bill, he took us aside. He's going, okay, I want you to say this and don't say that and try to be positive. Don't be <laughs> negative. And, and we got Tom Tremuth there who ended up doing producing the uh, No Rest of the Wicked album. Anyway, it's me, yeah. and, me and Brent. And we're both dressed like a bunch of farmers because we're, <laughs> we're supposed to go and teach. Well, I was a farmer, right? So yeah. we're supposed to go on TV. So like, well, you better wear your good clothes. <laughs> we're, so here we are. We're trying to put on these dress pants we haven't worn for 10 years. And like, like just like a bunch of hazies, I'm telling you. So we go on, we, we go on with uh, uh, Bob McAdory and Global News. And they're showing, uh, uh, we just get this big friggin' lecture from our manager and, and Tom Dramuth stand. And we go on and, uh, they're showing this film from uh, um, when we played in Texas, and then Bob McIntyre turns to Brent, and he goes, so Brent, uh, which audiences do you prefer, Canadian audiences or um, Texas audiences? And Brent goes, uh, 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 and he freezes. He just, <laughs> he freezes completely, right? And then there's like, uh, and you know, like a second on, on TV is like an eternity, right? Yeah. He's looking at the camera for like, three seconds just this blank look and then he goes and he and he just drops his head and he's looking into his lap and he's <laughs> there's some this, bob McAdory jumps back in with some lame comment like well back to the show everybody yeah <laughs> but, you know so that was a that was our first time down in texas and then on the second album white lace and black leather it became a hit in europe and a number one import uh, with the song women whiskey and sin which we stole from a line in a, a six song. Yeah. Uh, born, born for Adventure. Huh. I was born, born for adventure, women, whiskey, and yeah. sin. Well, yeah. that, that's, good. that's a good chorus. So we had our, a song called Women, Whiskey, and Sin. Yeah. Uh, give me women, whiskey, and sin. Yeah. And um, it became a huge hit for us in England, and, and metal was just taking off, especially with Iron Maiden. And the guy from the record company over there, uh, what was his name now? It'll come to me. Um, but anyway, the guy from EMI over there was really tuned into what was happening with the metal scene. So he came over to Canada and he went and talked with Dean Cameron, the president of Capitol Records. And he talked Dean and taking a, a good look at us because cool. he thought we were on the on the cutting edge of what was happening music wise over in europe and it was bound to come to canada if it was already over there so yeah. we got the capital club and they were looking at us up the gas works yeah and uh we put on a rip roaring second set and they were blown away well they they said okay we were leaving and we'll let you know right and they left the bar and at the very last song of the set brent blew his amp up so Brent went out, and instead of us just canceling the third set, 
he found a practice amp and he put a mic up to that little dinky little practice amp that's about one foot by one foot. <laughs> and we rocked out the last set just like we rocked out the second set, even though we had this shitty little amp up there. Hmm. And unbeknownst to us, Capital snuck back in the back door and watched us. Yeah. Afterwards, they said, look it, we were so impressed with the fact that you didn't stop when the amp went down that we thought, this band won't stop for anything. They're going to keep going. They're a good bet. And we had one of the strongest followings across Canada. At that time, one of the first questions that the record company would ask a band was, where do you have a following? Well, we could say we got a following right from coast to coast because yeah. we toured from coast to coast incessantly all that time, and we had built up a following. Then we had our little newsletter, and we were very uh, – uh, accessible band. Some bands hide away in the dressing room. Uh, they don't want people to know what they even look like. Not so the case with Helix. Everybody knew what we looked like. Each person abandoned their own little following. Brent had people that followed him around. I had my own friend. Paul had his own friends. And so when we got signed, people right across the country were already buying our first two independent albums, Breaking Loose and White Lace and Black Love. And same thing in the United States and over in Europe. Yeah. Well, that speaks well of you because, you know, you get the re rejection letters and what do you do? You're going to put your head down and go home? No, you say no. You just fight through it. And then you do a couple albums, you release them yourself. And then the next thing you know, people start taking notice of you. And then you you signed the big deal, right? You signed the, the U.S. Uh, capital EMI deal. Was that what you ended up getting? Yes, we were never, ever signed to the Canadian label. A lot of people don't uh, realize that. We were signed to capital EMI out of the tower in L.A. Yeah. And the reason that happened was because Capital uh, Records, Dean Cameron's at Capital Records in Toronto, thought that if we signed at the Canadian label, then the U.S. part of the label would ignore us. We mm -hmm. wouldn't get the attention we deserved. And so he advised us to get signed to the American label. Yeah. And was that a good thing? That was a good thing. Yeah. Yes, that was a good thing. Um, but it also gave us a big insight in how fucked up record companies really were. Well, that's, that's the double-edged sword I was talking about, right? Like they're, they're your best friend, your worst enemy kind of thing, right? I mean, they, they got the money, they're splashing it around, but then you're a, you're probably a smaller fish in a bigger pond down there, or maybe you didn't get the, the, the pump that you wanted to get from them. Is that part of the problem? Well, no. What happened with us as Capital Records was, was a very strange uh, um, situation. With record companies back then, they had about five, six people at the top of the record company. One guy would be in charge of AOR radio. One guy would be in charge of uh, CHR radio. There'd be another division where there'd be a guy head of uh, video production. Mm. Follow me? Yeah. The way those people advanced within the record company was assign a band and then have that band be successful. Such as, I think there was a guy, uh, I forget his name, and he, he had poison, right? Yeah. So Poison was successful, so he got a better job in the company. And that's how it worked. And with a mm. better job, obviously came far more money. Our guy at the company at that time was a guy named Bill Bartlett, who was in charge of AOR Radio. You follow me so far? Yeah, yeah. And Bartlett really believed in the band. He believed in us. Right? And so while Bartlett was there, it was great. But then there came into the company a guy, what was his name? Anyway, he was a real redneck, and he used to try to ferret people out at the company that did drugs at Capitol Records. So he found out Bartlett was doing blow, 
and try to get Bartlett fired from Capitol Records. Mm. But he couldn't do it because Bartlett was so friggin' popular. So he got him demoted to, like, I don't know, bum boy in the mailroom or something. Yeah. And he used to go down and get this. Here it is. The president of Capitol Records used to jab him in the back with a cattle prod. What? Really? You know what cattle prod is, right? Yeah, absolutely I do, yeah. You'd get sued for doing that. <laughs> well, that's exactly what happened. Bartlett <laughs> turned around and sued the company for $650,000. He had entertainment tonight, and everybody pounded on his door trying to get him to go public with this, which would have been a, a real black eye for Capitol Records to have the president running around jabbing employees in the back with a frigging cattle pride. Okay. So Bartlett settled out of court and um, what's-his-face got fired. Well, as soon as Bartlett was gone, that was our career. It was over. We didn't realize it at the time, but that's, mm. that's essentially what happened. So... When, <laughs> when Wild in the Streets was being put together, we were basically told, okay, this is your last shot. You know, this El Masio big, blah, 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 blah. But this was all before the Bartlett thing went down, right? So yeah. they advanced us all the money. They sent us, they hooked us up with one of the major producers at the time in the world, Mike Stone, right? Yeah. Mike Stone had worked on the Harder Faster all with uh, April Wine. And, um, they sent us, so, uh, first off, they brought Stone over to North America, and Capital didn't pick him up at the airport, and, and Stone took a shit connection and freaked out they didn't pick him up. So, so Capital Records went and took us out to the uh, Million Dollar Saloon in Mississauga, and they spent about 2000 bucks that night in private dancers and strippers and whatever. Then we went back to Capital Records, and they opened up the, uh, uh, the boardroom, they took a couple strippers back there, and the strippers danced on the tables while we all sat around and drank from the company bar. So, Daryl was so drunk that <laughs> they put him out in the front lobby of Capitol Records. We wrapped him in two-inch tape, and we left him there in the lobby huh. of Capitol Records. Like two-inch right? recording tape, you mean, right? Well, anyway. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> two-inch recording tape we found somewhere, somebody's album. <laughs> yeah, somebody's album. Nice. <laughs> We're talking a long time ago. Like, oh, that's too funny. I'm only telling yeah. this because Dean Cameron passed away some years ago. Oh, okay, so he, um, so then you went over to England, I guess, to record, and and this was still being paid for by Capital, right? It was being paid by Capital, like something like two thousand dollars a day. They sent us. Nope. So Stone wanted to record out at the Manor, which was Richard Branson's place out in um, near Oxford. Right. So we were out there for. For over a month of this place, it was, it was amazing. It was like a 16th century castle. We had, uh, there was a snucker room, a private go-kart track, a nice. uh, canal run out back. There was an indoor uh, swimming pool. Uh, we had our own private uh, chef, gardener. <laughs> they made wow. supper fresh from the garden. Like nice. no expense was spared. Mike, yeah. Mike Stone drank a bottle of Chevy's Regal a day. And... Um, then we went from uh, there into uh, uh, London, and we mixed the album at the townhouse, also owned by Branson. One morning, we're in there, and, uh, well, I'm not was it in there. Uh, inside, we used to have a restaurant, and, it, and the restaurant had a two-way window. You could see out on the street, but they couldn't see in. So there was an old hippie cook, and she worked this restaurant. It was just for people recording the studio. So, you know, 90% mm. of the time, she wasn't doing anything, right? Anyway, there was this old hippie mama. She worked as a cook there, and, and 
there was this little restaurant there just for musicians. Well, she used to smoke these great big freaking hash joints, but yeah. nobody could see in from the street, right? Oh. Well, anyway, one day Fritz is in there. He's having breakfast. Who comes in for breakfast and sits down? Just him and the other guy, Freddie Mercury. Oh, wow. <laughs> so Freddie, Freddie Mercury comes over and says to Fritz, he says, mind if I join you for breakfast? <laughs> Fritz says, no, sit down, Fred. Yeah, yeah, well, they so, will be fine. <laughs> so Freddie Mercury had breakfast with um, with Fritz, but Brian May used to come down all the time because uh, uh, Mike Stone did a couple of the uh, uh, Queen albums. Oh, nice. Okay. And uh, cool. I got to know also uh, Brian May also through um, Neil Murray because Neil Murray used to ro uh, uh, rent the one room off my wife who lived down in Shepherd's Bush, just mm -hmm. down from the BBC. Oh, and uh, and and Neil played for uh, Brian May when he came to Toronto, played the the uh, Danforth, and I actually went out for supper with uh, Brian May, and um, Cozy Powell, yeah. and Neil and uh, Spike who played uh, uh, keyboards. Well, that must have been exciting for you. I mean, you're over there, you're on the big budget with the big record company and stuff, but then that's all recoupable money too, right? Part of your deal is all that money's got to come back off uh, oh, from yeah. the record sales and stuff. Oh, so, for sure. So that was your last album with, with Capital. What happened with that deal? It just kind of, you filled, fulfilled your contract and then it was over? Well, no, we, we got to the point where I think it was pretty well decided they were going to pass on us, right? But it wasn't. Yeah. When it all went down, I think it was more like, oh, we don't know what to do yet. And it kept stalling to the point where we just felt like we can't wait anymore. It's too long. We got to, yeah. Because by this time, we had recorded back for another case ourselves. And then we went and licensed it to the Canadian company. And then we were in Grudge in the United States. Was Grudge, yeah, Grudge in the United States and GWR, yeah. which was Doug Small's label in Europe. Okay. Yeah. Well, I was, cause I was reading the list of, of record, you know, like Aquarius and AMM and Dirty Dog and, and then you Volmer records, you started your own, like it's, it, it's pretty cool, but it's also very roller coaster, right? It's up and down. And what are we going to do now? Well, yes. And no, if you look at it like that, sure. Yeah. It looks like roller coaster, but really what happened was once you left that, um, that major record deal with Capley and my, then we did licensing deals. We didn't do any signed label deals. Okay, and so and that's so, better so for you. When right? you get into Dirty Dog Records, as those are all my own labels. I just <laughs> what difference does it make with the labels? Yeah. Right? Well, exactly, but you get to keep more of the money, right? Well, and, and I also get more artistic freedom. Uh, for instance, uh, for instance, well, you know, you don't have as much money to work with first off, but on the but sometimes that isn't a bad thing because then you don't waste money. Yeah. I use all top-notch people, but I don't pay that much. Yeah. Uh, first off, you know, you got a little bit of cred when you've been around for 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> so people are more apt to, to say, well, sure, I'd like to work with Helix just to have that notch in their belt. Yeah. Because the name means something, right? Yeah. And plus, you know, they like the band. Maybe they grew up in the band and, and they just want to do me a favor, which is great. Well, and that's fair. You no, know, I'm, I'm not going to turn that down. Like, I, that's a warm feeling I get. Well, from my fellow musicians. Absolutely. Um, I mean, yeah. No, I think that's a, that's a good point. And the thing is too, if you, if you're self-financing, like I've, I've played for guys for free or for almost free, just because it's, they're, they're financing themselves. If you've got a record company that's splashing money around and hundred dollar bills falling out of every pocket, well, okay, then there's money there. If, if there's lots of money there, I'll take some of it. But otherwise, if you're just financing it yourself, then let's do it. We're friends, you know? 
Yeah, like usually what I do is, here's another thing too, right? They know, they know that I'm not going to go in and put out a piece of shit because I got mm. I got a track record to back me up. They can look at the stuff I put out in the past. And, you know, most of it's pretty quality stuff. Yeah. When I was uh, just trying to string like two nickels together, you know, and some of them like B-size and that, they were pretty effy and come a couple times. But, you know, I eventually got my shit together. And, and now I use Siegfried Meyer, who's done Juno's. Aaron Murray from town here. He's, um, you know, won all sorts of awards. Nice. Uh, Nick, uh, Nick, uh, Blagona worked on, uh, yeah. you know, when pigs fly, you know, worked in deep purple albums. And they got Harry Hess masters, all my albums. Now Harry's the top mastering guy in North America. And then yeah. when I release my albums now, I, I usually do United States and Europe through, uh, uh Tom Mathers and Paris records. And he's distributed by Select a Hitch, which is the old fam, Sam Phillips label family. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. So they have a long history and and knowing how to distribute uh, records. And it's gone back to a lot of mom and pop stuff, so a lot of indie albums, and very, mm-hmm. how should I say, select market. First and yeah. foremost, when I go out, I want to hit my old market, but then I want, want to expand on the market as well. Yeah. Bottom line is, I can only write songs that I feel, so you can only gear it to such an extent. I'm not yeah. for sitting down and write to sound like the flavor of the week. I can't do that. My heart's not in it. I just yeah. try to write good songs that make me happy, and hopefully if they make me happy, they're going to make somebody else happy. And uh, sometimes they're just an expression of where I'm at in my life. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, that's that's interesting, and and of course, as you get older and more experienced, you got more control as well, as you said, artistic control, but also with the finances. I mean, I've read so many biographies of bands, and one common thread through all of that is that the the suits come in and they take a chunk of the money, the recoupable money, either gets inflated or not paid back, or you know, and and the band is at the bottom of the the food chain kind of thing, right? So you get the table scraps when all these other guys are making making the money. And as you get older, you get smarter about that, right? And you can you can sort of switch that around. Well, yes and no. Um, like you said earlier on in the conversation, the thing about having a big record company is they were bankrolling everything. Yeah. The problem comes that when, after touring around the world for who knows how long, at sixteen cents on the dollar to pay back the advance, the band still broke. The, the record companies made two million dollars, but yet the band doesn't own the recording. Yes, that's where I really have a problem. There should be something in law that when it gets to a certain point, there's a shotgun clause. You know what a shotgun clause is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shotgun clause means that either you or me get to own this, and the way it works is if they have possession of, say, the tapes, right? I'd say no yeah. rest of the wicked. They can say, okay, you can have these. You paid back this much money. We're going to offer them to you for $50,000. Take it or leave it, right? And then if you say, no, I'm passing, they got to pay you $50,000. Okay, you, I got you. It's called a shotgun clause. Yeah. If you, if you want the tapes, you got to pay them fifty grand. If they want it, they got to pay you. So that way it keeps the price fair. You get what I mean? Yeah. In other words, they're not going to ask for $150,000 because if they know if you go, no, I'm not paying that, they got to pay you. Yeah. Do you see how that becomes fair? But right, well, it now, does. But right yeah. now it isn't fair because uh, after paying back the record company for like years and years, like, okay, look at it like buying a house. Yeah. 
you got the mortgage on the house and you pay off your 24-year mortgage and then the bank goes, okay, now you paid the house off, get out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's yeah. kind of what <laughs> it's, but that's what it's like. Yeah. But those are one-way deals most of the time, right? They're they're launched in the favor of the, the record company in perpetuity. That's right. So but now, nowadays, the... the, the the record deals are changing. Someone told me that they do have something like a shotgun clause in them, right? But what yeah. about all those artists that got screwed over for so many years in the past? The government, the government should correct that somehow, or well, so, I think, or so can, or the musicians union that really does dick all. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's right. I say that, I say that quite openly. I, I, I've I've said to the union uh, in regards to uh, say work permits at the border. Work yeah. permits have continually gotten worse for bands over the last 20 years. Meanwhile, our borders are sieves for American bands coming up in Canada. Why is that? Yeah, that's a good point because it's much easier for a U.S. artist to play in Canada than it is for a Canadian artist to play in the States. And you've played in the States lots, right? Well, no, not only that, there's more places to play in Ohio than there is to play in Canada. Right. Yeah, there you go. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. They, they are already in a market where they can enjoy playing all over the place. Yeah. We're in a market where, you know, it's like, uh, what is it? How many miles in Toronto to Thunder Bay? Yeah. Yeah. And then Regina and then <laughs> Calgary. And then Regina and <laughs> Moose Jaw and, and Calgary. And uh, that's about it. Then yeah. you got to work your way back. And you've done it all uh, more than once, uh, many, many times. All right. We're going to take one more break. We're talking to Brian Vollmer, the lead singer of Helix. We'll be right back. Liner Notes has a VIP community, and we'd love to have you as a member. Listen to the weekly episodes before the rest of the world, enjoy bonus podcasts, and be the first to know about upcoming guests. Oh yeah, the episodes also have no ads, breaks, or interruptions of any kind. Check out the details and become a member at linernotes.ca. That's linernotes.ca. Now let's get back to our special guest. And we're back talking to Brian Vollmer, lead singer of the band Helix. Talking about his rock and roll life, very interesting. So I wanted to ask you. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the the death of your bandmate. I know that you you've talked about that lots over the years, and and I didn't realize I went back. It was 1992, but you know that was a big deal around here. I live in Vancouver, right? That was the top story on the news when that happened because we, especially all us traveling musicians, I'd been on that road a thousand times. I've been everywhere in Western Canada, up, down, sideways, and you always worry about that thing. And 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 then it was on the news, you know, that that Paul had. Uh, passed away in, an, in a car accident that must have been really traumatizing to you as a as a person too right it's traumatizing for everybody yeah the morning uh, it happened i had gone out to with a writer somewhere and we were at his place it's a townhouse or something we were talking i came back everybody's crying yeah go, what's the matter we got in the elevator and this girl says paul's dead and i, I remember Jeez. stupidly thinking in my mind don't worry i'll phone my manager i'll, I'll fix this yeah uh, that's how stupid I was thinking. And uh, anyway, everybody came down, and every and then then things really started to get crazy. We got to the friggin' airport, and, every, and then people started drinking. And so they're walking around, like just openly drinking in the airport. And I remember, <laughs> I remember getting to getting on the plane, and one of the guys in the band was who was already like pretty drunk by this time. We had a bottle right in his hand. They made him put it in the garbage can. Yeah. Uh, and then we got back and people just kept phoning our houses incessantly for days. And um, I don't know, it was just, uh, I thought the band was going to fall apart. Paul was a major writer. 
Yeah. You know, old, like he was very unique in his songwriting and uh, he was my writing partner, my friend, uh, you know. Yeah. We thought the band was going to break up at one point and I just kept going and going. I didn't know how to do anything else. It wasn't like I was this brave guy, you know, yeah. foraging ahead. It was, what was I supposed to do? Yeah. Nobody hire me. I had worked uh, at a straight job in like 20 years. Yeah. Well, fair enough. And, uh, and, and, you know, again, it was a big deal. I think it was the top story on the news that night, but I, uh, we went through something similar about 10 years ago. We, we lost our, one of our bandmates to suicide. And, and so it kind of, you know, it, it stuck me in the heart, you know, and, and I thought about that and losing a, a band member. And he goes through different uh, 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 um, degrees of grief too. Yeah. You get, you get angry at the person that's dead. Yeah. And I went through that phase too. I was, Going, why the hell was he in that van? Yeah. Why, why did he have to do that? He could have flew back for 120 bucks. Why the hell did he have to be in that goddamn van? Yeah. And like I started blaming him, getting mad at him. Yeah, right. But, you know, that's all part of grief. And, um, yeah. you know, I look back at it and I miss the guy. And uh, I thought he'd live to be like 100 years old. He was he was the oldest guy in the band by far. And he looked like he was the youngest. <laughs> yeah. He did. Yeah. And he was a kind, caring individual, and all he cared about was fishing and his dog and writing rock and roll songs. Yeah, good. Well, I just wanted to bring that up because, uh, you know, like people are more important than the music and, and the, the humanity and living, you know, is more important. And all of us guys that have been on the road, I, I, I know lots of guys that have been in accidents and, and a couple stories where guys haven't, haven't made it. And it's, uh, it's something that we can all relate to when you spend a lot of time staring through the windshield, driving and traveling and stuff that I, well, especially for us, we drove so many crazy hours. Oh yeah. You just yeah. have the stupid rule in the band that if you're two hours shift is up then the next guy had to drive. Yeah. So we had this arbitrary list. So it'd be like three 30 in the morning. Somebody'd wake you up. Well, you just went to bed like a half an hour before or something. Yeah. And he had to get up and drive for two hours. Huh. A lot of times with Paul, because good said he couldn't see at night, he was uh, night blind, I'd, I'd just drive right through his shift. Yeah. Uh, in this particular case, uh, I think the driver was trying to make it to wherever the next place was, and he fell asleep. And yeah. when they hit the shoulder, the shoulder was soft, the, the van jerked sideways, and then went started rolling. Yeah. And it rolled like five or six times. They were all sleeping with no seatbelts on. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So Paul got thrown out the window and all this stuff. Yeah. I, I, I wasn't there, thank God. Well, yeah. I, I mean, that I've, I've done lots of those trips. I know one band, they would just put a couch in the back of their van and then no seatbelts or anything. But I had a thing where I would, I would roll the window down, turn the radio up full blast, and I would pull hairs out of my legs because it would shock me a little bit because <laughs> I always swore I was never going oh, I, I would slap myself in the face sometimes when I drove. Yeah. There you go. Which is, is which is just like a punch. Yeah. There you go. And it still wouldn't keep me away. <laughs> um, we used to have towards the end, like after, after the accident, we always had a, a rule that you, you weren't allowed to drive unless you had somebody as a co-pilot. Yes. Keep somebody else. Somebody's. Away. Yeah. Somebody sitting beside you, yeah, right? That's, and that, that's been a rule ever since. Yeah, I've done that too. And I think that's a smart thing to do because everybody else goes to bed and the one guy's driving and he's tired too, right? So, And over in Europe, we used yeah. to do the same thing. I remember driving all night long with Fritz through France. We were way up in the mountains and it was foggier than hell. Yeah. Uh, another day, we were driving through Spain on Christmas Day and it was snowing, believe it or not. And the, the van started to spin out. And I remember I went, here we go. I can't. 
I said, everybody, hold on. We're going into a spin. Yeah. And, and the van started. We were going like a four-lane highway, and the van just slowly started doing this spin at about 80 miles an hour. Jeez. And it, and it spun around about three times and just straightened out. We kept going. Oh. And that was it, luckily. Adrenaline rush right there. Adrenaline <laughs> rush right there. Everybody awake. <laughs> so did you like the traveling, though? Did you like to travel? I love tour? traveling. Yeah. I love traveling. Well, good for you. Yeah. Yes. Uh, some people hate it. Not me. I, lo I love it. I, I live on it. Um, going to, yeah, good. In 2019, we went to Barcelona. I think it's one of the most beautiful cities in the world. I could live there. And uh, nice. I thought that's exciting. But even in the early days of the band, I was raised on a farm. So I never went anywhere. My dad was dirt poor. All he did was work. Maybe when yeah. he wasn't working on the farm, he was working at Campbell's Soups. He was a mechanic yeah. at the mill, right? And I always dreamed of going places my favorite book was huckleberry finn yeah i even went so far as to build a raft down to the creek and of course it sank like a rock it went about two feet but <laughs> i always had that um desire to go places and i remember the first time when we went up in northern ontario we were gassing up in gasoline alley and i was north bay or someplace like that and i remember looking down the road to where the lights kind of disappeared in the distance and thinking to myself, wonder what's down there. Mm -hmm. And I never lost that curiosity. We'd pull into towns. And still to this day, when I pull into someplace in Canada that, that I've never been before, I just find it fascinating that my eyes are looking at at that. And I, and I tell people when I get back home, and I can tell that they're kind of envious in a, in a way that, I'm seeing these things, not envious that they're envious of me, but maybe that's the wrong word, but uh, they'd like to go see those places too, let's say. Yeah. You got to have a love for the travel. Though. That's one thing I just couldn't handle, but you know, I had lots of friends that said, Hey, wherever I hang my hat, that's my home. I don't care. I love to see places. And you could never have lived the life that you did if you didn't love to travel, right? You just wouldn't have done it. Yeah. I think you have to be born to the life. Yeah. Yeah, I'm always reminded of a book I took in grade 13 in English class. I forget what the name of the story was, but the person they were talking about in the story was a individual in the 1600s who used to uh, fast in the circus and people would come watch him fast. I guess it was a big deal back then. Oh, it was, uh, are you talking about the hunger artist? Hunger artist. Yeah. Is that the name of the story? Well, he's in a cage and he doesn't eat, and that's his. That's display. right. That's the, you remember, remember the punchline at the end of the story. What was it? I forget now. It's a, it's a short oh, they story. Go, oh, you must have had amazing willpower, and he goes, "No, I just didn't like food." <laughs> that was the punchline of that story. That's funny. But in yeah. music, it's it's the same. I've tried to quit yeah. the music business four or five times, and there's always something that drew me back in. I was sure that after the Ian Gillen tour in 1990, I told my manager before I left. I said, that's it. I'm going to do I said, I don't want to do this tour. Yeah. I, said, I quit. This is it. I'm, I've had it. Yeah. And he said, look, I've already put this together. You can't quit now. There's too much money. People are losing all money. You got to do it. I said, okay, this is it though, right? So I went mm -hmm. over. And when you know it, halfway through, good the last drop, become this huge monster hit yeah. uh, back in Canada. And my manager said, well, look, you might as well come back. You might as well do this tour. And like, <laughs> we'll give you extra money. And that, that. Yeah. I don't know what the hell. Because I was yeah. broke, actually, with the money from that tour, I ended up buying my first car. And like, I don't know, since I got divorced, 
about three years earlier with some shit box Delta 88, a V8 engine. But I loved that it was like my car. I wasn't riding a bus anymore. (laughs) And um, I just forgot about quitting the band and I never ever thought about it again. Well, it's, I was going to ask you about that because you guys were the quintessential '80s band, right? You had the big hair, the big rock shows. You know, the, it was it was super cool. And then by the time you got through the '80s, you said the '90s kind of beat you up a little bit. Anyways, you had to kind of, you know, take a different approach. So, what happened with that? Well, I don't know if we took a different approach. I kept the same essential business. How uh, could I say? Um, attitude that i had since the early days i kept in touch with the fans i even when i was struggling to uh, own a home with my wife i was investing a certain amount of money back into product like writing new material and that and even though i was putting out albums for ten thousand dollars whereas i used to put out half million dollar albums and trying to compete with that like people didn't realize they go well it didn't sound as good as uh, well the streets they go it cost four hundred ninety thousand dollars less Right, it's like buying the difference between buying a Rolls Royce and I don't know, uh, 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 you know. And uh, but you know, I I soldiered on, and I'll tell you something about all those little dinky albums. I eventually sold them to Sanctuary, and they gave me six thousand dollars a piece. And I went and put the money down in my first rental property, and now it's worth something like four hundred thousand dollars. Nice, yeah. And it all started. It all started with those little albums. So. Here's a lesson I always tell to my young students. Don't give up. And don't listen to other people. Listen to yourself. Yeah. And, and go for it. And, and you know, good things will happen. Yeah. Um, whether you believe in God or whether you believe in some uh, greater force in yourself, uh, you can only do so much. And that's why you might as well go in there and enjoy it for yeah. the music. And, and, the, and the money will follow. Because, look, yeah. if you do things for the love of it, people will eventually pay you money because you become so good at it because you love it. You never become good at something you don't love. Yeah, that's a hundred percent true. And I've often said too, if you don't love it, you're competing against somebody who does. So, yeah, and you'll never be better. Never. <laughs> you'll never be better because they love it. Well, uh, the thing I was going to ask you about was because in the eighties, like I, it was, uh, it was Helix day around here yesterday. I watched about 30 of your videos i tried to go through your discography but you have so many albums out i couldn't go through them all <laughs> but um but i was watching all the videos and i was thinking geez like some of those were expensive to make too right like in the 80s the mtv years and the much music and stuff you had to crank out videos and you guys were classic for that but those are expensive too right well the first uh video for heavy metal love was twenty six thousand dollars. now it was yeah. relatively cheap the second mm-hmm. video which is for uh, Don't Get Mad, Get Even. Yeah. They shot it and it was too dark. But I think what happened was, you know, unknowns, unknowns to the band, I, I heard my manager, Bill, complain about it, but I'm sure what happened behind closed doors was Capital probably went, look, we ain't going to shoot this over again. So do you really want to make a situation out of this? And we went, no. So, um, and then we came to the third video, which was rock when it was, you know, Runaway Smash, of course. Yeah, yeah. It was based on the Flintstones. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, Mr. Was... Mr. Slate and his core, you know, that's what the <laughs> video was based on. Yeah. And the second day, they had to fire half the guys because they were coming on with the chick, coming on to the chicks because they did uh, a version where they all had their tops off. 
And then, uh, well, so I was well, curious, how many videos did you make in the 80s? Well, there was After Rocky, there was Give Me Good Lovin'. Give Me Good Lovin' with Tracy Lords, which was done at uh, Francis Ford Coppola's old studio down in Hollywood. Oh, you went to L.A. to do that? Okay. Yeah, that was uh, the only video I think we went to the States. And then the next video was maybe do anything you want with uh, Ken DeBias's brother. And it was at yeah. some place up in Toronto. Okay. Um, and then on the next album, Long Way to Heaven, Deep Cuts the Knife was done by Al Cool. Um, yeah. We weren't really happy with that video. Hmm. But it did really well for us. Uh, Deep, Cuts, Deep Cuts the Knife with the Double Breaker Staffs in the United States and uh, in Canada. That song was on the top seven at seven and Q one seven like forever, like six months straight. Yeah. People were telling us truck drivers, friends of ours going down the States and we were hearing the song everywhere. They were driving in the United States. Huge hit. Nice. And then we came out with Kids Are All Shaken. And uh, it was kind of like a luster song, but it's still got the MTV playing in the United States. And then I don't know if there's anything else. That, oh, I don't think so. And then we got into Wild the Streets. It was Wild the Streets that got MTV play. I don't think you had any radio play up in Canada. And then yeah. Dream On, um, uh, the same thing. They didn't. Music was kind of changing, and um, there was starting to be a hate on for us. Hmm. And by the time we got to uh, Running Wild in the 21st Century, uh, that was on the Aquarius label. I it was the capital store. No, it was still capital story. I'm wrong about that. And uh, we then they brought in Phil Cates, and Phil Cates did an excellent job in that. And I got Snake the Tattooed Man the video, and that made the video to an extent. Uh, and I don't believe it or not, when I was working for a minimum wage job in downtown London, I went into a restaurant covered from head to toe in, in black dirt. Yeah. And I saw that tattooed guy and I said, Hey, buddy, you want to be in a video? <laughs> And that was it. Well, well, the, the thing is about the video and lots of guys that I've talked to, it kind of cuts both ways because back in the eighties, when MTV came on and stuff, you basically had to have a video with songs, but it was, it was a lot of work and a lot of expense and, and getting the money back from it, from video plays and stuff was real tough. Right. So yeah. it was kind of, you put the money out and then it's on your recoupable money. Well, you, you didn't get the money no. back. No way. How do you make money? Yeah, exactly. Back? So, but you had to have it. You had to have it. It was an in what was really screwy about it. The 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 record company would make you do the video, but there you never got any money back on it. So basically, they were telling you they're giving the advance of say I don't know two hundred thousand, and then one hundred twenty thousand. You're spending advertiser product. Yeah, that comes off the record sales. That's right. I had the same thing happen with someone. Tell you who it is. Well known guy in Canada one time. And this was on the. Um, Get up album, and at that time, and money was really falling for advances. But they they had advanced me something like I don't know, twenty eight thousand dollars or something, and but they wanted me to turn around and spend eight thousand dollars on promoting the album, <laughs> hmm. which you know what I mean. So on one hand, you're paying back the money, but on the other hand, you're going, oh by the way, we want you to put put eight thousand dollars to help us out over here, and you're paying for it. No, yeah, isn't that funny? <laughs> no. <laughs> so you said, well, isn't that kind of your job to do that? Well, see, a lot of bands from my era, they didn't run things themselves. They had no knowledge of the inner workings. They were out there being musicians and writers. They didn't want to be business yeah. people. 
Helix, on the other hand, we were invited by our manager, Bill Seipt, at any time go down and go through the books and see where the money was going. Now, we played so much that very seldom do we ever do it. But occasionally, guys like Brent would go down and go through the checkbooks, and he'd know where every friggin' cent went. It was all taken yeah. care of. And um, through those business practices, I later adopted them when I started putting on our own albums. And yeah. by putting yeah. on our own albums, I began to realize over a period of time about things like mechanical royalties, yeah. uh, neighboring rights, MROC, yeah. sound exchange. Uh, performance royalties, filling out the sheet, all that stuff that comes with putting yeah. out albums and collecting royalties and that, which a lot of a lot of musicians are just like they don't want to know. Yeah, they don't want to be bothered with that end of it. I've always taken a a, um, a hands-on approach to marketing the band. In the early days, I walked right out in the audience, right up to tables, and I'm not afraid to do that today. Yeah, good if I got product to walk right up to the table and say, hey, are you interested in buying an album? Yeah. I don't give a shit. People yeah. come up to me and they go, oh, yeah, that's beneath you. <laughs> Star like you shouldn't walk out in the audience and talk to the local. I said, you're a fan. Why would yeah. you think like that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, um, I, I, I picture myself as being on equal footing with everybody in the audience. Yeah. And uh, and when I go out there, I'm talking to them like I'm with a bunch of friends, and that's why I don't feel any uh, intrepidation and uh, trepidation going up to a table and saying, "Hey, uh, would you like to buy an album?" Oh, that's cool too. Yeah, well, and that's if a they good give word, me a hard yeah. time. I got to come back for that. Well, that's a good word because you know, in in the '70s and '80s, I found a lot. You know, that there's this mystique around these entertainers, and they try to act like a rock star, and they got their posse, yeah. and they're hiding behind their glasses and stuff. And that's sort of gone by the by now. It's kind of like, okay, you're you're a guy, you've done well, I appreciate that, but we're just people, we're just trying to live our lives, right? And I appreciate you saying that because uh, I think that that in the long term that works out better than the other way. Oh, they're only hurting themselves. So the other couple other things, if you just take a minute, if you if you're okay to keep going just for another couple of minutes, I got a couple other questions I wanted to ask you about. Um, one of them was radio play. Like you said that that you don't get a lot of love from Canadian radio these days. Like like it's 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 more difficult to slot your music into what the radio people want. Is that an accurate statement? Well, classic rock radio doesn't play classic rock uh, new songs, but classic rock artists. Yeah. In fact, the CRTC ratings actually work against us. If you're a program hmm. director, I don't know, the Baron Edmonton, what are you going to play? Here for a good time, not a long time by Trooper or some obscure song you just wrote. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. You're going to play here for a good time. It's proven. You're not taking any chances. Frank used to say to me, you go, he'd say right to the guy at the radio and they'd go over their head. He'd go, uh, I wear such and such a radio station. say whatever the radio station was. you go, we don't play it. Uh, we don't make the hits. We just play them. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, that said everything about it. Yeah. Uh, and nowadays they, they have a certain amount of songs in classic rock radio. They won't play anything new unless you're Ozzy Osbourne or yeah. They won't even play the they won't even play the Rolling Stones. It's like Ozzy Osbourne. Who else do they play? Um, I don't know. Let's play it. Yeah. Yeah, well, interesting because um, I mean, radio was not as relevant as it once was, but at one time, in, especially in the '70s and well into the '80s, e even with the MTV and stuff, it was extremely important, right? I mean, the radio 
really drove a lot of artists, and that's where people had accessibility to those songs. Well, in a way, it still has to drive radio. There has to be some common thread, or else if you don't have that large amount of people focused on, say, a smaller number of groups, then how do you get big concerts happening? Mm-hmm. But I mean, satellite radio and stuff now is lots of guys just listen to Spotify, stream on Spotify or listen to satellite radio. I mean, it's really a changing landscape out there, right? I know what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, well, I was wondering about that because usually I ask people, especially guys like you that have been around a long time, you know, how has the music business changed over the past 50 years? And of course, that's a, a big, long, open-ended question because there's lots of ways, but radio is one of the ways, right? Radio is definitely one of the ways. And I don't go on Spotify with my new stuff. No. Because they don't pay nothing. Yeah. Uh, Spotify is for unknown bands that want to get discovered. If you don't know who Helix is by now, you'll never know. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> like Bruce Allen's famous quote, I'm Bruce Allen. If you don't know who I am, go back to sleep. <laughs> His classic. So so do you get nostalgic looking back on stuff? I mean, it's been 40 years now, right? Since uh, since the early 80s when you got your big deal and stuff. How do you, how do you consider it looking back? How's it make you feel? Uh, I don't know. Don't have any feeling towards it. To it was a nice. Yeah. You know, I was very lucky. I feel grateful. Yeah. Um. But nostalgic? I don't know. No, not really. Like I'm always telling stories, but I don't know if that's nostalgia or not. Because it's not like I live in the past by any means. Yeah, no, it's, I don't want to imply that at all. I don't do that myself either. I said I, the other day, I'm not at the nostalgic phase of my career, but you look back and you get a bit older and you got a better perspective on life. And that was, think oh, about, the, you know. From that viewpoint, yes. Yeah. Sure. And what I'm 66 you, years old and I've seen different situations. They form yeah. my political beliefs, they yeah. form my uh, attitude towards life, yeah. uh, the way I handle my life, the way I handle my business. Yeah. My word is my bond. I don't give a shit what you got on a piece of paper. Yeah. If you say you're going to do, if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to keep my word. And I got 50 years uh, behind me to back it up. Yeah. And that's what I tell people. You either yeah. trust Good me or you. you don't. Yeah. Good for you. Um, that's a... And that's what I write on. Nostalgia, yeah. no, but I'm always picking up my past because that's where my money comes from. Yeah. That's why people pay, I don't know, whatever to go see Helix. Yeah, it's because of the incredible history of the band. You want to see the the guys that made that history. Yeah, um, but I don't, you know, I don't sit around wishing it was like 1983. Yeah, it doesn't okay. happen. Yeah, so looking back though, is there anything that you would have changed or handled differently? Maybe your managers, your bandmates, or the studio, or you know, no. you just kind of took no, it. Even as the it bad came. times, you you lose, you learn more from the bad times than you learn from the good times. Yeah. Hey, when things are good, everybody's your buddy. Yeah, right. When things are bad, that just shows the metal of a man. Yeah. How you react to the situation when you're being down and kicked. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's that's a good word. And and then just as we wrap here, I just wanted to ask you, you know, you talked about you did the the fundraiser for the the young man that had uh, been paralyzed and Tristan Roby. Yeah, Tristan, what's his name? Tristan Roby. Tristan Roby. Okay, well, good for you. And 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 that's a nice thing. That's a life thing, right? And then you're teaching vocals and stuff, uh, which is great too. You, we talked the other day. You told me about the bel canto thing, and then it was a nice little video. So for our listeners, if you want to see what uh, what Brian does for his uh, bel canto, there was a nice little video you put on there about the five myths of singing, which I thought was excellent. And 
uh, I really related well, to you. that. Yeah. As, as, as for the benefit, I think that every musician has an obligation to some extent to give back to the community. We're yeah. in a position that we can raise money more easily than someone that isn't in the music industry. We have profile. Yeah. We have people that will do things when we ask them to do it. I try not to do it too often for my fans because you can only go back to that well so many times. Mm-hmm. Like over the past 10 years, I think we had a benefit for Daryl when he had his heart attack and then a benefit for Fritz when he fell off the ladder. And, and yeah. this was totally something outside of the band. But um, I like doing benefits or giving money where the person is directly getting the money. I don't like doing things, yeah. like even though we do them for the Cancer Society, because we give away, uh, we sign guitars for the Aeolian Hall here in town and also the Cancer Hospital. But I prefer to give money directly to people like Tristan. I know the money went straight to his mother, nice. and she's having a real rough time, and she's yeah. just hurt just to have her have a couple of days to herself, yeah. you know, and not be having to worry about the money, right? Yeah. So I like it from that. And, you know, a couple of years uh, in a row there, we took uh, musical instruments and shit down to uh, Cuba. Yeah. Uh, and you know that for those, those people, they get a hundred bucks. That's like major change oh, in yeah. their life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good on you for doing that. You know, that's, that's the human side of it. And that's the, part of the thing that i like to to focus in on as well well yeah you know. i'm not looking for a badge or anything i just do stuff um like i said so many people help me out in my life give me and help me along the way yeah. and when you give stuff you know the reward is much greater than what you're giving because it always comes back to you yeah. absolutely you give to get and it's the best getting you ever get is from giving right that's correct so yeah, no, I just really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today and just, just sharing from the heart too. You know, it's more than just, it's more than just music. Well, thanks, Dan. Well, listen, I, I enjoyed talking with you too. Many thanks to Brian Vollmer for being part of the Liner Notes podcast and sharing some insights from his life in the music business. More information is available at planethelix.com. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and invite you to subscribe to it and share it on social media so others can enjoy it as well. You can also become a member if you'd like notifications and other inside information and perks. We'd love to have you on board. We also invite you to listen to Dusty Discs Radio at DustyDiscsRadio.com Tuesdays and Thursdays to hear music from the Canadian artists you are hearing on this show. Until next time, I'm Dan Hare.